You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right. I think we might kick things off. Um, thanks so much, everyone, for coming down tonight for our discussion on how design shapes worldview and worldview shapes design. Um, my name's Sam Wines. Um, I'll be your co-host for tonight. Um, oh, no, co-host. I'm so There's meant to be an Andrew here, but he's not. Um, so I'll just be your host tonight, actually. Um, and I'll be weaving through some perspectives and asking some questions for our panelists. Um, so to start things off, I would like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather here today. So this is part of the Kulin Nation um, and there is both Bunurong and Wurundjeri um, land close by that is still kind of, they're still settling where the borders were around here. So I tried and do my best to acknowledge both tribes um, given that it, they didn't really have lines like we might have. So things would blend and change. So um, yeah, just worth calling that one out. Um, and I'd like to acknowledge obviously their elders past, present and emerging. Um, and yeah, if there's any indigenous people here as well tonight, I'd like to pay that respect onwards to you as well. Um, so we're gonna keep things really casual tonight. Um, you might've noticed that we are gathered here in a circle and we are sitting down with you at this height as well. Um, and that, I think you can thank Dom for that one. I, I appreciate that. But it's just shifting, I guess, the dynamic of the conversation, right? Rather than us being up on a pedestal, you know, we're down here with you engaged in a conversation where we're all equal and all level. And just thinking about how that changes the dynamic, you know, rather than us being literally elevated and, and above you talking down, you know, we can now look across as equals. And just, it's interesting how things like that slight little nudges or changes can shift the way in which we perceive a situation or reality. Uh, anyway, enough preamble from me. Um, uh, maybe we can start over to the right, Willow, and feel free to just introduce yourself, a little bit of your background, and then we'll just sort of go around through the circle. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Nice to see you all and be here with you. Can you hear that okay? Yeah, cool. So my name is Willow Burzin. Um, I'm a designer born and bred in Melbourne, um, and would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people on whose land I also work and play. Um, and I'm one of the people that started the Coalition of Everyone and basically really interested in how democratic repair and renewal can help us make better decisions together and to surface collective wisdom uh, for our common futures. I'm gonna try and keep it short and sweet. Move it along. Cool. Um, I'm Dominique. Uh, I would also like to pay Julie Brook. Uh, part of my own reconciliation journey is to learn language. And uh, Julie Brook is a word I've been taught as the word for respect, uh, the Wurundjeri word for respect. So I'd like to pay Julie Brook to um, elders past and present as well. 
Um, and also celebrate that we're in between. My other part of my reconciliation journey is to learn more about the seasons and be in touch with this place. Because as far as worldviews shifting, Dark Emu just completely shifted me from white colonialist to, I don't know, aspiring custodian. Uh, so I'd like to pay um, uh, just, yeah, we're, we're moving from the brown butterfly season, so you'll see black, and then into the fat eel season, which is... Uh, and um, the, the word that um, I have been trying to learn um, is the word for deep listening. And I'm going to have to come back to you because I only started learning it today and it's gone out of my head. So I'll come back to you. But there is a, a beautiful word which I've forgotten. Is it dadiri? It is dadiri. Mm. Yeah. So I'd like to share that word with you and hope that we can deeply listen to you as much as you can deeply listen to us. Thanks so much for that. That's a really nice bringing in of the seasons. I really like how you have that in your email footer as well. Just a little subtle plug about what seasons actually are um, when you uh, acknowledge the traditional custodian's way of perceiving the world here. Um, yeah, so I've already said my name, but yes, Sam. I, um, I run a transdisciplinary innovation hub and biotech co-working lab called CoLabs Melbourne. Um, we're trying to help catalyze that transition to a circular, bio-based and regenerative economy. Uh, and we do that through supporting collaborative consumption of equipment and things that are related to innovation. And we're trying to do our best to help, you know, raise social foundations and bring humanity back within the planetary boundaries. So that's kind of my approach and where I come from, trying to support systems innovation. Um, and then we have Christina. Would you like to? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'd also like to extend my acknowledgement to the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, where I primarily work and live, and to the constant learning that I have from these places. So my name's Christina Napoleon, and I run an initiative called Terrain Projects, uh, which is an initiative where I create playful physical and digital spaces to remind humans that we are embedded in a more than human world. So my background's in geography, and it went through a bit of an evolution. I'll keep it tight and short for this intro. <laughs> But initially, it was about understanding, well, how do we get to this ecological crisis that we're in in the first place? And then that very quickly, through the study of the environment, led to human-nature relations and recognising that the changes that we need go far deeper than just technology and the really tactile scientific stuff, but into the deeper level of how we had created this negative and destructive relationship with the natural world and then the kind of things we need to do to remedy that. So that's now where the work is and it takes all kinds of colours, so I'll just leave it there for now, but that's where, that's where it sits. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that. Now, to kick things off, I thought it might be wise for us to explain some of these words that we're using um, when we say worldview um, and you know, how that impacts or affects your design process. So uh, if anyone would like to maybe start things with how, how that sort of interplay works for you and what we might mean when we say worldview. Anyone's welcome to start. So I thought maybe I'll just say what worldview is and then we can each say how our worldview... So the worldview is the glasses you will look at and how you see the world. Uh, and that tints how you understand what you're seeing. So if you see the world as something from which you want to take that winners, um, um, survival of the fittest, that's one way of looking at the world. Um, yet there are other ways of looking at the world. I'm here to contribute and the world becomes stronger because I'm giving to it, not taking from it. And so those just that shift from taking to giving is a huge shift in worldview. 
and it makes impact on every decision. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. I think that addresses two really important things. Um, the fact that language plays a big role in shaping our reality and then also that the metaphors we use can again cause a way in which, like really shape the way in which we perceive the world. Um, would anyone like to speak to how like the interplay between worldview and I can design. jump in on this yeah, one. please. As well, and I'm going to also throw in here that you've queried up ontological design and we'll incorporate that into this chat. So I thought maybe I can incorporate that to this answer. So ontological design being how design shapes us and then in turn design shapes us back. And so I guess worldview in a way is about saying what are the spaces that we have and how does that alter our perception of the world and what could we facilitate, say, an emotional level response rather than a surface level response to a space, for example, would be one way that we could shift on a deeper kind of iteration and also creating light bulb moments where new thoughts and ideas can trickle in a new space for that and allowing new space. So I think when I... This comes as well as the work I do through Terrain in saying how can I facilitate spaces that create perception change um, and centre behavioural and values towards ecology in those spaces and what does that take? So how do you get people to enter spaces or how do you facilitate or hold a space that is empathetically driven for emotional response? Um, and also some of our best stories are what alter our perceptions. So thinking about the best storytellers, I think they're the ones that can engage an emotional response as well. Thanks so much for sharing. Now, Dom, I know you said for me not to bring this up, but you have a pet peeve with ontological as a word. Um, maybe we could tease that out for a bit. You shouldn't um, have told me. <laughs> I, I was an academic for 20 years. And I found that a lot of academics use big words to hide the fact that they don't know shit. <laughs> and so I, I like just give me an example of what it means as opposed to use this big word that limits who can listen to what I say. Um, and that, that's... So I told Sam that if you'd put ontological in the, in the title, I would not have been here because <laughs> I'm... No way. I have to jump in there as well and say I think ripping it off like a Band-Aid at the start was part of a strategy to go, let's just acknowledge that word from the get-go <laughs> so we don't have to bring it up again later. But Because I also like went on a bit of a deep dive when I was going through like preparation for this chat and looking at the word ontological, which I don't use in my usual registry because my background's in science communication and rule number one is don't use words that create a barrier of access and entry. So... That word's kind of out the building in my word book. <laughs> so thank you as well for that. No, but it, it is really important. And Willow, we'll let, let you um, answer in a sec, but I'll just um, riff on this for a second. And I think um, the reason why I think it's really fun to play with terms and words is because they, they literally do shape the way you perceive the world. And so if you're using things like epistemological and ontological, um, you know, that might work for philosophy. Um, and it obviously does point to something very specific, but we can also say things like new ways of doing, being, seeing and knowing, and that kind of gets the same message across. But when we refer to ontological design, it, um, it is that sort of how essentially the tools and technology we create shape the way we are in the world as beings. Um, but yes, I think it is an interesting thing to call out. So um, thanks so much, Tom, for that. And Willow, would you like to share how... <laughs> The whole Thank you. Design. 
Interrelation? Um, I'm not an academic, so I actually had to look up the word and go, ontological, right? What is this? <laughs> Google help. Um, I actually think what's quite interesting about trying to understand how our worldviews shape us and how... There's a quote I think of, when you change the way that you look at things, the things you look at change. Um, and I, I started wondering about... Um, the differences between who we are and then how we're imprinted as well in our lives, particularly our earlier formative years. And these can create a good and bad imprints in, in who we think we are. And we're always, you know, on this lifelong search for meaning and trying to understand who are we outside of that. And I think that space is, is a really interesting um, kind of inquiry to, to, to want to know who are we and how do I see the world and how do I perceive it because of my experiences external, my parenting, where I've grown up, my culture, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this wonderful thing that I've recently come across, which is um, to reconsider the moment when you're responding to something and to not react. And I'm not great at it. I'm trying to practice it more at at the moment and be less reactive to what's coming at me and into me and to just observe. And I feel like that's this strange woolly uh, spongy space to kind of explore a bit further. It's like what happens when we're in life and, and any, any incident may happen or otherwise or we're being triggered by something, who are we and how are we responding and what are we seeing and perceiving? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. That reminds me of um, a quote um, that the space between stimulus and response is kind of where your free will sits and that's where you have your agency to make decisions. And if you are just responding without maybe thinking or reflecting, then, yeah, you might not actually have as much agency over the situation as you might think. Um, but, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Um, so what I think might be a nice one to go on to now, just given the fact that... Um, we were just touching before on, on, on what you were speaking about, Christina. How, how do you see um, cultural and societal worldviews shaping the design process? So you obviously actively work on kind of the opposite of that, trying to break down those barriers. So how would you see that happening um, in your, I guess, in your space? And what do you actively do to try and break that? Ooh. <laughs> It's a big question, but it's a good one. Um, so I guess also recognising too that even though you're trying to break the cultural worldviews that we've had pre-existing simultaneous to that, you're also reinstating new ones and current moments. So there's this like constant dynamic to acknowledge as well that we're in this kind of transition and grey zone and you're not necessarily going to get it all right. So I acknowledge that. But I guess a back disclaimer to this as well is in saying that this is part of my learning experience currently as Terrain will be opening a ecological bookshop in Fitzroy in May and a community space, event programming space for kinds of talks and workshops and events and um, everything around more than human agency and multi-species flourishing will kind of go down in that space. We'd like to think and give it an ecological hub in Melbourne. So in doing that, it's about being critical of the materials that we use to fit out that space. How is that reflecting the worldview and then also breaking down our traditional use of materials? Um, and so it's kind of going into a few different levels, even to the level of collaboration and everyone involved in this project and making the space come to life. 
How are we actually creating those relationships? How long have they been kind of going on for? Because it's a project that has a kind of relations process behind it. So, yeah, there's a few different aspects. I don't know if I'm answering this in the right direction. No, 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 you're yeah? doing, doing okay. just fine. Um, yeah, so it's kind of creating a space that tries to do at least acknowledge one little part and do it a little bit differently through the use of materials or the types of spaces. Can I riff off that? <laughs> yeah, please, please do. Cool. Um, what really excited me about your project is that idea of um, how does the non-human inform the space and how, how does it thrive because of this? And that, that was a big shift for me. Um, so when I did my PhD, I thought data would fix it. If we just had the right rules and the right data and the right tools, people would do More the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, that quantitative approach. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, have a science, I have a science and engineering background, so that, that's... And then I realised that it's the stories that you tell and to give a concrete example, so what that means for me in design and the non-human is um, I was part of a project in the paddock called The Paddock in Castle, Maine, uh, and we designed that project to bring back five species. So the powerful owl, the golden sun moth, the growling grass frog, the legless lizard that looks like a little snake, but it's just a lizard, uh, and um, the sugar glider. And that's our metric for success. It's a for-profit development, 28 homes on the same amount of space than any other 28 homes would be, but designed in such a way that we actually designed first for the, to bring back those ecological spe uh, species. But also to the people that live there feel pride and agency of being part of the story of those species coming back. Um, and it's their responsibility and their agency to help us with that. So I get excited photos and things. Um, the the three-year-old took me for a walk down to the, um, the, the dam so that we could record the frogs and send it off to the frog people at the museum. That's the kind of potential that we have with design and it's that thinking of how do we benefit all of the systems? And in fact, that aspect of community that's around a revegetation or restoration project like that, what becomes most exciting is that a lot of the impact becomes through, and the memorable qualities of that are through the social relationships engaged while you're having that activity and participating, but also the fact that you're kind of in a community space and that's being held. And I think there's there's also quite in, deeply referencing this sociologist, Roy Eulenberg, I believe, and he says that we're in this deep lack of third places, so places outside of home and work, so places you can just go and hang out. And even though it's a bookshop, it's not really like come and buy a book, it's come and hang out, come and sit here, come and stay in this space, find a community, felt, feel kind of held and form relationships around that. And we're really lacking that these days, especially in the kind of post-COVID lockdown climate where this project was deeply brewed. It was about how can we create new social relationships and communities and this is what felt most right and needed. Speaking to the the social weaving, um, yeah, I can, I can <laughs> you knew exactly where this was going. Um, it was Willow, a good segue. <laughs> yeah, um, would you like to contribute on how, um, yeah, I guess the design and eco literacy has contributed to your like work and and the worldview that you share through what you do? Thank you. Um, I think what's really interesting is when we start to shift and are able to even reconsider how we shift our mindsets from a very human-centred way of thinking, particularly with design, to a, an ecocentric way of thinking. And we can do that with design too. 
And uh, I have a diagram in my head that I, it's a bit stuck at the moment, <laughs> which is at the moment we have um, nature and humans are inside the economy. And actually we're in this transitionary period of time where we're trying to reverse that so that uh, the economy is inside nature and humans. And part of this inquiry with, that we're exploring at the moment is, well, what happens when you invite nature and the future to the table to make decisions together with? How will that as a uh, rituals and, and respect be played out in practice? How will that change the decisions we make? How will it change the way we think together in our ways of being and doing? And so we're exploring this at the moment. Um, at the beginning ends of it, it's 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 a hopefully a really playful space where we can just sort of learn and grow through holding community events, um, and and even across different forms of governance and and finance and ownership, with a new model that we're just launching called Earth Equity, and how this actually can work with businesses too, and we can basically help uh, business resilience be encouraged by inviting nature to join the board of business by inviting us to think about new uh, forms of ownership and land ownership and just to shift the, away from what we think we know. We've inherited so much stuff that isn't really working and so it's like a chance to to move and explore and imagine different ways of, of being and doing it together. So in the spirit of the deary and us being here to listen, I'm going to propose to our chair here. Um, that I'd love to hear a couple of you think about um, what would that look like for you as designers or as whatever students or parents or um, ambulance drivers, um, what does it look like to um, respond to this? What if the, the future and nature is in your decision making and you're making your decisions for your particular place in the world with that in mind. Maybe we can give everyone a second to think and then... Yeah, if there's anyone who'd like to, to answer that or share their thoughts, let us know and we can come over with a microphone. Could get the ball rolling with a thought. Yeah. So in a way that you could say that your actions either thicken or thin out that veil between humans and the non-human world or humans and the universe. And so every time that we do something and think something in a way that's either strengthening or, you know, creating or denying a different kind of relationship. Yeah, so to give you an example from nature, so in nature there is no waste, right? So a tool that could be used would be uh, in industrial design, designing for decomposition. So looking at ways in which we can create things that can go back to nature and compost easily without the need for any industrial sort of composting machine or anything of the likes. Um, another thing that animals do, like a keystone species, um, actually provides multiple benefits to the ecosystem at large. Um, so for example, a mycelial network will weave together all different trees and share resources between them. Um, so these are some, I guess, natural examples that could easily be extrapolated out into your work that you do when you sort of look at how you show up in the world and how you might try and radically redesign or reshape or retool um, your industry. So is there any, anyone who'd like to have a crack at anything? And again, no pressure. Oh, perfect. Dom, quick off the mark. Thank you. Um... 
I will say a really bad word, so uh, stick with me. Uh, I've worked with um, NFT. All right, sorry. Again, I'm sorry for the bad no, word. Wait, it's okay. <laughs> and uh, non-fungible tokens. So just to clarify, it's the it's dancing in the Web3 sort of space. Yeah, I won't it's say, it's I won't say crypto, but I'll say Web3. Yeah, okay. It's going to die soon. Um, so <laughs> anyway... Um, my job was to, like, we were making a game using Web3, and uh, my job was to be, like, I was the game designer, and one of the things in, uh, in Web3 was that we used, like, we were using real-world economy, which is different from any other thing that was until now in games, because it was a closed uh, economy, and you can invent money, it didn't matter. Like it was infinite. And once it wasn't infinite, um, we started to think, all right, how, how I, I don't know how to say it exactly, like how don't we just lose all our money in, in two minutes? Because pe if we give free money, a lot of people will come and that's it. There will be no more money for the company. So. Um, as part of my job, I, I need to start looking how how do we protect that? And eventually, where I came to was nature. It was like looking how uh, the resources, they keep themselves inside the system. You can see it like for the, the easiest uh, example is rain. So, and also like looking at, at that kind of economy, we looked on, on countries' economy because this is like real money and banks also like had these problems like when there was the inflation and stuff like that they just print more and it's not real and i think like looking at um at economy and getting inspired by nature it's it's something that we can really crack and find out how how we do it right yeah that's a great point i think that harkens to biomimicry or biomimetic design and approaches where we use nature as model and mentor. Um, so Janine Benyus sort of coined that sort of term, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking of doing business in that it's how do we create conditions that are conducive for life um, and how do we help nature continue its regenerative capacities rather than just extracting and degenerating. Oh, gosh. So um, I know there's another person um, going, but we'll riff off this for a little bit and then we'll, we'll riff off yours. Um, apart from the biomimicry, which is great that you mentioned that, there's a, another academic word for you, but uh, learning from nature. Um, the, um, the beauty is, uh, if, you look, if you listen to Tyson Yunker Porter's um, um, Sand Talk, um, his podcasts and so forth, Indigenous people made decisions based on the reality of nature, not of the made-up concepts that we have. And so as we talk about world view shifts, <clears throat> the way Indigenous people learned and learn is through story. And when we tell a story, you have to be completely present. It's not like a book where you can jump to the bit that you need to make your argument. It's not like you can um, listen to it and do other things at the same time. You actually have to be completely present to listen to the, what you're being taught within the story. So you have to have relationship to the knowledge. You look at Western knowledge, we flick through it to find the argument 
I don't know the last time I read a book start to finish and completely understood. The author's the only one that really understands the whole story. So there's a very different relation. It's a transactional relationship. Whereas with Indigenous knowledge, which is connected to nature, it's a relational knowledge. And that's also one of those world shifts between transactional, I can take, because I'm successful because I've taken, to relational, I give, and I'm successful because I'm part of a thriving system to which I'm contributing. Very different mindset. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel. I just wanted to throw in a fun fact based off this and also these two ideas is that in ancient Egypt, they used the Nile River to regulate taxes. So the height of the water also is what dictated how the econ economy was flourishing or how it was not. So that's just like, yeah, and they knew what was going on. They knew their stuff for a, a while. <laughs> for a few thousand years, that's for sure. Um, yeah, we have another question yeah. or thought. My name's Revan. I'm no designer, so I'll pass it off to my partner, Chloe, who's doing her architectural masters at the moment. But I think to answer the original question really quickly, like for me, I just think like for-profit production and therefore for-profit design and distribution has failed. Like it's pretty obvious. If, if I just take a really uh, like recent example, today the government pledged $340 billion to create eight nuclear-powered submarines, which won't be done for more than 30 years and it will probably cost a lot more in the end. And I, I actually feel very confident in saying that's more money than they will ever pledge to combat climate change. That's just my personal opinion. We can debate that, of course, but I have a very strong suspicion, um, which kind of just shows you that like the priorities of the economy, the priorities of the capitalist system have totally failed um, to lead humanity into a actually flourishing future where there's peace, ecological harmony, so on and so forth, right? So. I think the main, the main way like your worldview needs to shape design and design has to shape worldview in this age is to actually respond to that lack of, I guess, um, flexibility and like, like progressiveness of profit. I think it's just outdone its socially useful, um, yeah, uh, content. And I think, yeah, I think designers should think about that and really reckon with it because there's not much time left. Would you like us to quickly respond to that? Th thank you for, for mentioning that. I couldn't agree more. The whole take-make-waste economy is totally defunct and not fit for purpose anymore. I'm so glad you used that terminology as well because you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet with finite resources. So this, the, And again, it's a worldview, the economic worldview, which we just made up. It's a social fabrication. It's not actually grounded in biophysical reality like nature is, like we were speaking about before with the rain or the river. Um, you know, they're real things. Money is just, uh, it's kind of just like a, an, an analogy for choice. Simplification of exchange. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's not that real and we could just change it if we felt like it. Um, but I think, would anyone else like to respond to that as well? I would actually, I think um, what you've touched on too about this is we have a system of governance that is making decisions for us, not with us, that exists at the moment. And that worldview that is so much money on weaponry just makes me think, well, is that the worldview of the world is scary or the world is actually beautiful? Can I trust people or do I fear them? And that sort of opposites of where is the worldview that is informing those decisions, I think is part of what we're all living in at the moment. It's like, hang on. This doesn't need to be like this. We can, there is an alternative. 
and it might be beautiful, but we need to work out ways to step towards that together and let go of these fear constructs that we've inherited. We should flood the interweb with ideas of what we could do with that money. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> Great idea. Yeah. That would be, yeah, be very interesting. Would you, would you like to um, share your thoughts as well? Yeah, sure. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was a lot louder than I was anticipating. Um, That's right. Yeah. You speak really quietly, so you do want to... Yeah. I know it sounds loud to you. That's because you're near there. Oh, yeah, true. Um, well, yeah, I was, like, having a similar vein of thought to that kind of thing because, um, yeah, I'm doing my master's at the moment at Monash and I'm studying um, Sue Fujimoto's House of Music in Hungary, which, um, if people don't know, it's, like, really beautiful biomimetic design. Basically, just looks like a big mushroom with, like, trees going through it. It's meant to be, like, creating a gradation between, like, the artificial and nature to try and help humans feel more connected to nature, essentially. But sort of like the point about like how you can't separate your design, no matter what worldview is actually like informing that from like the political and economic priorities of the system, because the government who commissioned it is the government of Viktor Orban in Hungary, who is like a really far right, um, fascist kind of figure in a speech he said that uh, Europeans and non-Europeans should not mix and he's commissioned this project as like a legacy project to try and like honour like Hungarian culture and his own government and stuff like that so it's like you have this beautiful like biomimetic design but it's sort of used in this vein of sort of um, greenwashing this horrible government sort of thing so I just use that to say like I think like architecture is like there's limits, obviously, to how much you can sort of, like, influence, like, the economics and stuff. But it is a really important vehicle of critique, I think. I think it's actually, like, an essential vehicle of critique, as is, like, art as a sphere more broadly. Um, but you need to be, like, explicit and sort of, like... Um, you mentioned the third place, which I think is, like, a really important thing to consider, how working-class people are more and more losing democratic rights over space and stuff like that. So thinking about ways people can feel agency over the spaces that they that you can create and can influence and stuff can create contradictions in like broader capitalism where people think like if I can have agency in this space why can't I have agency over this space if I can sort of decide things here why can't I have more choices in this other sphere that I inhabit and stuff so yeah I think like architecture and design more generally can just be a really important way of sort of like giving people experiences that sort of stretch beyond the limits of what capitalism, like capitalist realism and neoliberalism sort of like impose on people's imaginations, I think. Thank you. I think that the bit that I take from that is the power of creativity. And that's uniquely human. And I would contend that we're... I would argue that we're part of nature. We are nature. We've evolved to be right here, right now, for a reason, and it's our creativity, our intuition, our ability to test, hypothesise, and so forth. And if we switch that to really listening to the reality of the world, together with our creativity, that just gets me so excited. Um, and there's so much power in that, and all of us who are designers in some way, even a old scientist and uh, engineer over here, um, we can see the power of 
the uniquely human thing that we can provide. And we've tried to limit that through our economic models. But actually now we're starting to explore what that looks like when we expand it again. Look at the place where we're sitting. Can't imagine anyone doing this 30 years ago. So. I was thinking about the George Monbiot quote. Um, we need public luxury and private sufficiency in, in that comment that you made earlier and, and the reflection there as well. And um, so I'm not an economist. <laughs> I have to just get that out there. But I've been nerding out on donut economics for a while and it's quite an amazing tool uh, to use to reconsider how we might actually shift our economic systems in place. Um, Regen Melbourne, super exciting. Everybody, Melbourne people here, if you haven't heard of it, have a look. There's a lot of really awesome stuff happening through that work. Um, yeah, I think part of the, the shift that I hope we're all finding ways to be involved in and use our skills and our interest and our curiosity as forces for good in the world is to actually step towards how do we create these pathways for change? What do people need? What are the stories that we're telling? How can they be accessible um, for everybody and so that we don't leave people behind in this crazy transitioning time? Yeah, thanks for that. I think, oh, sorry, please. Are you going Please. Um, and also just leaning into it and something you were saying earlier, Willow, is just how to kind of think about the spaces that we currently have access to and the ones that I feel or you feel are missing. There's no reason why you can't be behind creating that space. So in many ways, this space for terrain that will be opening this year, I felt very strongly that a space like this didn't exist and that I felt like this is where I would like to go and maybe somewhere that would give me support in my work. Um, and how I thought, well, how would that also support other practitioners in other spaces, other fields, other industries in integrating and applying ecological ethics into their work. And I thought, do we have an ecological help desk in Melbourne that is not an academic, you know, guarded space or not through kind of paid, um, like, uh, workshops and things like that? Like, what, where would you go? Like, where, what's the genius bar for ecology? And so that's kind of the underpinning of the concept of the space. And I thought, well, there's none of that. So let's give that a two-year time lapse and see how it goes. So it's all a prototype, it's an experiment and it's designed to decay in two years as well. So that's part of the two year longevity of it. Thanks yep. so much for sharing that. I think that um, I might riff off that as well if that's okay. Um, <clears throat> so that actually, you signed up exactly why CoLabs exists as well, is that we came from this idea of collaborative consumption and the share economy. So rather than um, every company having to have a lab, or everyone who wants to do um, things that create a positive impact that might not necessarily be monetarily or financially viable, but might have a lot of ecological or social benefit, um, there's not really anywhere for those sort of companies to go to. So the whole premise behind what we've set up is that there are, there are startups and people who have money who pay for space, but then we can also support student groups charities and all of these other people who might not have the finances or anything or the skill set to be able to learn how to do impact-oriented design and innovation that might be bio-based or bio-inspired. And then they can come to us and we offer them free space, free consultation, free support, networking them with other people. Because what this does is, if any, I'm not sure if anyone here is familiar with um, the different forms of capital. So rather than just financial capital, you know, there's ecological capital, spiritual capital, social capital. Not to financialize everything, it's just, you know, the map's not the territory. Use this as a just 
guidelines, right? Just acknowledging that there are different forms of value other than just money. Um, so I guess what we're trying to do is optimize for the whole rather than maximize for financial return. So yeah, we don't make a crazy amount of money because we give back and support and do things at a fair price that's under the market value, but that's because that's how nature also functions. So looking at weaving in those ways into how we do things and working together and hosting free events to bring people together and sharing knowledge because, you know, knowledge capital and transfer is really important. Um, so just to riff off that, yeah, I think that was a really important point is that just creating space for people with ideas to try and make positive impact and creating a network and a community. So again, community is the heart of everything we do. We also have a science, uh, a community science laboratory that um, people can come along and learn about things too. So there are lots of different ways in which we can change and do what we like to call it business unusual, you know, just completely radically reconsider the ways in which we can function as an organization and try and find ways to, to give back. Does anyone else want to? And also be happy to fail. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm There's so unqualified to doing this. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Echo that. Yeah. I, I actually was thinking, uh, did anybody remember there was a dial God or a God hotline for a while? I'm like, we need like a, a new hotline. Ask dial Jerry. Ask Jerry. <laughs> dial nature. 2030 to regenerate the future or something. Some kind of like ring in to figure out what can you do to get involved. It's a really good idea. Genius Bar Help Desk. Yeah, that's what, yeah. yeah. Well, instead of a shop counter, it's like help desk, librarian's desk kind of energy rather than more of like a come and buy kind of. It's also like a lectern. It's a bit multi-purpose. So it's still finding its... Were you going to have an event as well where you got to read a human rather than read a book? Oh, that would be good. You can facilitate that. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of reading a book, make time with a human that you want to get to know. <laughs> Yeah, no, it would be a good one to add in. But there's all kinds of options with the way we can activate the publications and have conversations around them um, and giving them kind of the time and space that's needed. And over, a, you know, a duration of two years is a fairly long and decent period of time to be able to create and hold that space. And also kind of riffing off ideas before of this world that we found ourselves in and a lot of the problems we're in of overconsumption and environmental degradation and collapse in like every sense so much of that goes back to this fear-based worldview and scarcity mindset and we need to create so many more spaces. There's so much work that needs to be done in creating those environments and spaces and projects and expressions and everything that can in some small way contribute to a mindset that just is not that. I'm going to pick up Sam on this one because I like being the heckler at the back. I've got time for it. Um, so Sam said that, you know, we can't have infinite growth in a finite planet. Quantitative growth. I'll clarify that one. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Because ideas are infinite. Creativity is infinite. Um, actually, we have solar energy coming in. And if we harness that solar energy in effective ways, then we can create more abundance. And it's that, that idea of um, it's finite, so I need to take what's mine. That is um, to protect what's mine that is part of the mindset that blocks creativity. Whereas if we talk about abundance and creativity and that's when we start smiling and nodding and, um, and also building on each other's ideas. Uh, um, and also one of my mind, big mind shifts within this um, is, again, Dadiri, uh, listening. So listening to everybody with the intention to learn from them whether they're a child or a koala or a storm, uh, that 
capacity that's that shifted my mind. Or a tree as well, right? Like when when you look at um, uh, let's say Indigenous Australians and how they relate to country, they actually speak in dialogue with country whenever they're walking around, and they always acknowledge it and relate to it and speak to it as if it was one of their kin. Um, so that's yeah, 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 exactly that. Um, so that's like another interesting thing to think about, um, seeing nature as uh, an entity in and of itself rather than just something passive, it's something that's active, um, active and dynamic, which is a really interesting sort of approach to thinking. Um, is there any other things that we'd like to riff on? Maybe on that as well is create space in yourself for the unknown too, like something around just how if we've got our hands full, we don't have space to give nor receive so it's kind of more like how could you also walk through the world in being open to and receptive to things that might be dynamically playing and bouncing around you um, and especially today in our like very fast-paced lives it's so easy to get kind of like caught in the busy and I find just for me personally this is kind of how I keep grounding back and like to facilitate my own kind of inner dialogues is how can I create more space in myself to constantly be learning because it's quite easy to then shut yourself off and then become your own echo chamber and so I find just opening back up again and leaving a little bit of a corner or zone. I love that. that. Space for reflection mm. and renewal and learning. Mm. I think they're, yeah, they're very important to be able to I guess uh, the concept would be iterative design to bring it back to design, like kind of taking that time to think and look at ways in which we can act that might be different. And slowness I think is really important, like slowing down, attentiveness. Even going with the seasons to, to back to where you began, Dom, um, we started a, not a practice, but it's happened a couple of years in a row with some of the people I've been working with where at the end of the year it's like, well, what do you want to compost in the year that you've learnt what do you want to let go of and fertilise into the next year? Just as a personal inquiry that's quite actually quite potent. And then what do you want to grow in the new year? And doing that with the seasons, um, there's something I think shifts where, where you're kind of connecting with, with this place. In time. In time, yeah. And also, and just going back on that too, is when we do operate in such a fast way, that's like we move fast and we break things and we need to slow down and mend things. And I think that's so important with how we need to shift these worldviews. Um, and just like the seasons, there's a time for projects. Like there's um, the writer Catherine May wrote Wintering, which is a beautiful book and she goes into a lot of detail on how each season has its echo of how you'd work in that period. So in the spring, it's the planting of new ideas and then the summer is like this really busy, flourishing, rapid zone of, of chaos and work. And now we can feel as autumn in Melbourne is setting in, even though there is actually a different Indigenous seasonal calendar. High summer. Yes, yeah. So, but as the winter comes in, Catherine May also, I believe, is writing from North America, so slightly different seasonal calendar there. Um, and so she was kind of saying then in winter is when you like sit back and you hibernate and you hold your ideas um, and I think there's new ways that we can also incorporate slowness and then find like a level of comfort because I think it's all too common to just have conversations and go, I'm too busy or I'm stressed and how do you slow down? It's like, well, really slow down, really pay attention. I love the calling out of the, the cyclical nature of, I guess, the world around us and how it, it this kind of makes me 
feel like a, a little bit of a Taoist approach that you're sort of saying, you know, tapping into the into the flow of things and going with that rather than trying to fight it and, you know, always being on, um, which I think is really nice. Is there anything else that we'd like to share over this side? Agree. And I also think women's cycles and men's cycles. Oh, we have our own body you. cycles yes. <laughs> to consider when I don't, listen to my body, I just run myself ragged, which is a little bit too often sometimes. And when I do, it's like, I just need to chill out at the minute because my body is just doing strange hormonal things, particularly at my age at this point too. I'm like, okay, I need to listen to that and, and not fight it. Yeah, that, that brings up a point in which I guess um, the current world that we live in is is pretty much, this is another Tyson Junker Porter quote, um, is hostile to women and children. And it kind of when you look at it that's a, that's very accurate it's kind of all works off like the, the men's schedule which is kind of always on just by the nature and virtue of how we function you know we're not as tapped into cycles um and that's just because we don't have as many that naturally occur um so yeah it is really interesting to weave that in to think about that um, and especially how like and i think i'd really like to use that as an example to bring in the need to weave in a balance between the feminine and the masculine worldviews to be able to create a coherent way of looking at the world and leaning into either way. And I think currently there is a bit of an imbalance towards more of the masculine way of functioning in the world. And I guess when you look at um, like the feminine, um, that, that definitely is more of that relational way of, of, of doing and being in the world and an emotive and seeking connection and, and consilience. Um, rather than the command control narrative, which you see so dominant in, uh, I guess, I guess the science and, and business and all of the things which have traditionally been very male-dominated and oriented. And it's not an either-or. It, yes, it, it's and. A, it's a yes and. It's, it's not about saying the command and control is wrong. It's just not in balance. Contextual, as you sort of said, as yeah. in the conversation we are having before, it's, it's that dynamic interplay and flow. Like the yin-yang symbol best way to represent this ever that was they took so long to distill that wisdom into that little thing there and it's that dance between chaos and order and the acknowledgement that there's a little bit of each in each. one another and it's a dynamic spiral and how all states are constantly emerging as well they're just constantly in flux it's probably the beautiful. the best thing that's ever been designed i would say <laughs> it was uh, a really huge call <laughs> <laughs> but it's good design <laughs> i nearly got a tattoo order i like things. it that much <laughs> What I think is really interesting too is actually what about the space where their two shapes join? Yeah. Um, and then yep, of the course edges. the edges. Exactly. Love the edges. <laughs> and thinking about uh, the donut economic model and uh, community organising, it's actually there's all this invisible stuff that joins us and binds us and connects us and it's not currently seen and visible in the world that we kind of operate in in, in modernity um, and not that we want to quantify it or anything like that but to it to pay more attention to it I think is really interesting to try and learn and move and understand it um I think even as you were saying earlier Dom about stories stories are the I think it's um the closest thing between two people is a story and so it's actually how we perceive the world and each other and it's that kind of space in between or the dark matter that is what connects us the energy flows and it gets a bit kind of quantum I think in actually what is beneath all of this around us, even if we don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to it. 
It's like the the collective field. Oh, uh, I, I butted it in front of you before, and I'm sorry about sorry, that. Sorry, no, no, sorry. It's because I'm on the end. <laughs> I'm gonna like go and do one of these. Um, and also in the spirit of International Women's Month as well, um, and this note of care, um, I think we can put a lot more attentiveness into caring for each other, and um, supporting one another. And this is kind of like the feminist idea, and I guess something that has been also feminized, and it's like that unrecognized labor that goes into communities and by taking time to ask and check in with people and support them it's not only a radical act but it's a politics of care and something we can make more time for and it's that is the inaction of enacting of community like that is what makes and grows community is kind of being there with people for people I love that. That reminds me of the, is it General Happiness Index that's out and about somewhere rather than GDP? Because GDP goes up when there's a... Gross National Happiness Index in Bhutan. In Bhutan, yeah. Because GDP goes up if there's a war or COVID or horrible things happening. And it it also incentivizes, because it's got perverse incentives to financialize everything. So as you're saying, like, what would have been, you know, traditionally things that would have been done at home, like caring for kids or making dinner for someone, you know, that's not good for GDP. Go out and use Uber Eats um, instead of making food at home. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, and again, that's something that is, a, that is a financial tool which the guy who made it even said, don't use this tool, uh, like don't let the map become the territory, so to speak. It's not, a, it's not something, and it can, ha- it can be severely misused to, to misconstrue data. Um, but yeah, it is, that is a, like a fascinating sort of perspective. We've got five minutes. I was going to say, should we do some Wrapping questions? Yeah. yeah. Does anyone have any questions or comments or thoughts that they would like to share? Yes, great. Would we, we can bring over a microphone. Hang on. I haven't got up in a while. So the future doesn't exist. So when you talk about inviting the future to the table, are you considering emergent futures as part of that discussion around a table and still that top-down humanistic control? Or is it a suggestion that futures are available to us if we factor futures into what we do? Damn good question. I think it could be any or all of those things depends on the context and what you're trying to do with the situation. The situation, the, an example I'm thinking of at the minute might be, well, the voting age is currently 18 and so people's voices under 18 aren't being necessarily listened to in the decisions that are being made for their future. So what happens if we not necessarily lower the voting age but start inviting more age-appropriate consultation into the way we're making decisions because young people are our future is one way to consider it. Great question. I had two thoughts. First one is, uh, you know, the um, American Indian seven generations back, seven generations forward way of thinking. Every decision, you want to be doing that, which means you don't make the decision for now. You make the decision based on what's been to where you want to go to. Um, The second thought was, so the field that I came to after trying to fix the world with data was something called regenerative development. And, and what we do in regenerative development, um, do I have, uh, Go for we don't it. have a lot of time. Okay, so usually people talk about regeneration as in a fire comes through and the forest regenerates, right? That's ec- ecological regeneration. But what does that look like for us? How do we, what does our post-fire person look like? 
anyway. So within regeneration, um, what you try and do is you try and create the systems that increase the vitality and viability of the system to respond to change. So you're not designing for the future, but you're designing the system to be healthy so that it can evolve into whatever is coming into the future. Does that make sense? So it's not about deciding what it is going to be. It's saying, how do I make this place as healthy as possible? How do I make myself as healthy as possible so that I can um, be as resilient to change? And I also have a teacher from North America who placed this in another way that I found helpful for my own framing. Um, and they said, this is Margarita Mora who runs Neotero, which is an Indigenous-led organisation. They do brilliant work. And um, she said that before you commence any project or work, ask yourself the question, what kind of ancestors do we want to be? So to consider the implications, the impact, how that project comes to be from that place might actually be a good way to frame that seven generations back, seven generations forward, and then make it relevant to how you contribute to that because one person, this is a grand statement, but you can't really take on everything. Like you have two hands and two eyes and there's only so much. So for me, that's a framing I use. Yeah, and another interesting framing that might be worth having a think about is when we look at um, the dream time, so the indigenous cosmology and worldview and mythology and science and everything all wrapped into one, um, they sort of speak to past, present, future as being everywhere all at once, all the time. Um, Academy Award winner, I... I <laughs> some quantum mechanics, just weave that in at the end. <laughs> yeah, why not sprinkle it in there? Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, just, just a little bit. Hot um, dog fingers. Yeah. need another panel for that. Yeah, 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 exactly. That'll, that'll, that'll be another... I have a lot of books on that coming, actually. Really? Yeah, so come to the space. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Pumping it up. Yeah, why not? I've got time for it. Pump up the tyres as much as you need. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really using, useful framework to think about as well is that both, like we can only ever experience the past and the future in the present. Um, and I guess the stories and narratives we tell ourselves are what, um, I guess, create the conditions for that emergence to happen that you sort of spoke about there. Um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about it that the future is also here as well to use another quote. Uh, I think it was in Daniel Vile's book, but it's just not distributed evenly. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, I love it when the audience knows more than you about a topic. It makes life so much easier. So thanks so much for that. Um, is there any other questions that anyone would like to, to ask to even any of the panellists or to the group as a whole? Or um, hit us up afterwards if you're not a in front of everybody type of question asker. Thank you, but Dawn. But I thought yeah, that was a beautiful right. way of finishing. Let's go forward and be good ancestor. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Mm. i got time for that. Um, well, how about that? We're going to wrap up exactly a minute and five seconds early. Um, feel free to come up to us after the fact as well. Um, if you would like to have a bit of a discussion, I'll be hanging around for a little while. No pressure if you guys would like to leave. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to ask us any questions, please come up and say hello. Um, and yeah, if you are interested in anything further after this, just reach out to myself or anyone else here on the panel. Um, you can find our details on the event page um, and we'd probably be more than happy to have a chat about everything. So yes, thanks so much for carving some time out of your evening to come and say hello uh, and to, to watch this with us. We really appreciate it. And does anyone have any final words? 
think you summed up well. Thank, Thank you. you.